Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. We are here at the International Students for Liberty Conference in Washington, D.C., and I have some great guests, uh, great guests lined up for, for you today. Uh, we have Jeffrey Tucker, who has been on this program before, obviously, and uh, he's with FEE. Uh, we have Joshua Guckert, who is uh, the associate editor of the Libertarian Republic, and Jacob Richards, our very own at Outset Magazine. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, You're in person, right? Right, yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, so the, the theme of this episode I wanted to cover is the state of liberty across the world. Um, and I wanted to get your all's perspective on not only what, not only, not only how uh, liberty is perceived around the world, but how we can help it grow. And because I think too often that we get uh, trapped in this kind of dogma of that, that America or whatever country um, you may choose uh, is, has a, a grip on liberty and no other country does. Um, so Jeffrey, I want to start with you. Uh, there are a lot of nationalists, um, fascists, socialists on the left, uh, movements rising up across the world. Do you say on the left? So the socialist one on oh, the left, the, the nationalists and the and the. I, mean, I see three great uh, threats to liberty right now. One is you know is, is Islamic fascism, Islamism, Islamic extremism, which in many ways the U.S. Uh, sort of helped create actually, with the <laughs> which you know is sort of blowback. And then you've got uh, the the stasis oriented socialist left, which is you know, the anti-industrial, uh, primitivist, environmentalist school of thought. Very dangerous to modernity and capitalism and economic progress and and then yeah the fascist nationalist uh, radical right <clears throat> you know which is rising up in Europe and in the United States so those are the, those are the three great threats um, I think in general though all three are outweighed by the rise of markets around the world which I which I don't think is any turning back nobody people are not going to give up their cell phones or video games you know the digital distributed networks these things are are, are relentless uh, but unfortunately we're gonna have to go through a period of, of transition I'm a little disappointed to discover this actually because I hoped you know after the collapse of communism that it would be a clean trajectory you know straight to liberty that was stupid that didn't happen <laughs> but on the other hand we're gonna we're gonna eventually get there you know just one example international trade I mean you know, we got Trump running around talking about buy America, hire America. You know, look, right. We are so past that. It's just there's right. nothing you can see in this room around you that's made in America exclusively. Everything's made everywhere, and nobody's going to unravel that. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's just nuts. Uh, you brought up a really good point because um, do you think that these movements will continue to grow at the rate when, when you see, when you look at evidence? Capitalism has never worked better in the history of the world, with right. poverty reaching all-time lows across all all, all across the place. They're, they're going to burn out eventually. I just don't look forward to the next few years because I mm -hmm. think we're going to be seeing some some wicked plans being trying to shove down our our throats. Whether it's going to be the uh, you know the kicking out of immigrants from the U.S. or the you know the attempt to tax a trade or I mean, you, you name it. And then the blowback from Trump. Jesus. You know, I don't know if you ever right. listened to like Elizabeth Warren and, and that. Oh, these people are scary. Really scary. So I'm concerned about the next few years. I think it's going to be a period of profound instability. But I hope we'll learn from it. <laughs> I, I hesitate only because we don't ever seem to learn anything from anything. But I hope that this time we'll learn from it. 
So, so do you think it's too late, or do you think that there's still enough room for people to be able to reject collectivism for the sake of the individual and, and for the sake of liberty? You know, there's, liberalism is nonetheless rising around, around the world, too. It's mm -hmm. not so much ideological liberalism, but through practical liberalism. People want their stuff. Right. That is a really important. It's greed that's going to save the world in this case. I mean, people, are, as I say, <laughs> not going to give up their digital technology and their their cool tools and their friendship networks and everything else. I mean, we've got a kind of anarchy that's breaking out all over the world, despite the rise of all this nationalism, um, and a beautiful anarchy that's that's unscripted and uncontrolled by anyone. And that's to me the most optimistic sign that we we face. Uh, Joshua, I want to I want to move on to you uh, for a second. With the rise of organizations like ISIS, um, neocons all over the place wanting war left and right, finding every possible excuse to try to go to war, Trump trying to be tough on Iran, the world is more or less on edge. Can peace and, and sanity and diplomacy prevail um, when a lot of the powers that be throughout the world just want bloodshed? Yes, I do. I do think that ultimately peace and, and negotiation is the, is the natural human state. I, I think that in spite of this sort of eclectic mix of imperialism and isolationism that, that Donald Trump espouses, I think that some of his most popular messages that really resonated with populist Republicans were, for example, talking about how terrible of a failure the Iraq war was. So I think that for us to discount that, I think, would be an error. I think that even though it's extremely unsettling how friendly Donald Trump is with, with Vladimir Putin, some of these totalitarian nations, and while in no way are these Putin or any sorts of these, these two-bit dictators any, in any way libertarian in any way, I think that most Americans would rather see us not be combative and not be going to war with these countries. And if, if we have issues, just speaking diplomatically, I can still remember eight years ago when President Obama talked about wanting to negotiate or discuss with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad that Republicans went crazy. They thought that was absurd to have a conversation with someone. But now, eight years later, now we're, we've come to realize that in the same way that, that President Reagan discussed with Mikhail Gorbachev in, in having diplomacy is that diplomacy can be useful. So I think that people do not want war. And even though that there can be passion and fervor espoused by certain politicians in efforts to engage us in conflict, I think that the natural state and the natural desire is for humans to try to work together to find solutions. Um, do you think that that's going to occur within the next uh, four years, specifically um, now that power has transferred in, in the White House here in the United States. Uh, do you think that, that Donald Trump will be the kind of, you know, uh, diplomatic, you know, uh, hands-off approach that, that a lot of people think he is? Or do you think that he'll kind of fall in line with that of Barack Obama and talk a good talk on it, but then when it comes to it, it'll just be another bush well from my perspective is is president trump has been very frenetic very erratic in what exactly his worldview is or what will come to be known as the trump doctrine mm -hmm. and so if we're going off of history alone the educated guess would be to that he would just follow in line with with bush and obama and reagan and bush hw bush so 
that that's sort of the pessimistic way of looking at things is that Donald Trump will just fall in line. And it, it's very troubling now that there are some murmurs that, that John Bolton might be adding into his administration now. That's the national that's, security, right? Yes, and it, it seems like John Bolton has been on on lists for various different positions. And other people have, have been close to his ear, people like Chris Christie, Rudy Giuliani, these, these run-of-the-mill neoconservatives. And so it, it doesn't, it seems like with President Trump, with any number of issues, but also with foreign policy, is that whoever has his ear last is who he's most intrigued by, which for libertarians can be good and bad based on who last talks to him. And so it's, it's, it's very unsettling is perhaps more than any president in American history, we don't really know what President Trump's worldview is of where our involvement of the world will hear him at one point talking about not wanting to be involved in nation building, but then the next moment saying that we should go into Iraq and take Still the oil. oil. Right. And so it, it, it's completely mixed. There, there's no way of, of really knowing. It, it, it seems like he, he wants to sort of cater to the, the libertarian sect that's left in the, liber, or in the Republican Party, which seems to be fleeting at the moment. But at the same time, he still have these, has these neoconservative impulses. He's surrounded by neoconservatives, and the Republican Party at, at large is still filled with neoconservatives. So I'm not particularly hopeful about President Trump's foreign policy mirroring some like someone like Ron Paul or Rand Paul, mm -hmm. but I would love to be proven wrong. Mm -hmm. and I think you made a really good point uh, right now is that he doesn't really seem to have much of a foreign policy. It's kind of like, well, let's, you know, if if we need to show our toughness, then we'll show our toughness. If not, then eh. But uh, I, I, I think um, in, in one of our former episodes, we had a guest on and, and he was talking about how most of government is not elected. And that most of the most of the people in government have been there and will be there for a very long time. And those, like for example, the generals and the people that he has around him, and those are the voices that will be speaking to him on whether or not we go to war or not. And I think They're mostly going to be less pro-war than I think. Right. I mean, uh, the deep state is is uh, generally uh, favors diplom diplomacy to, to, to war. Uh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. Um, I think that sometimes they, sometimes they like to create instability for for the sake of m making the world better in their own image, um, and I think that may be concerning in some cases. Perhaps I don't know. But Joshua, I I, I want to know what what exactly can can get people in the mindset across the world, not just in the United States, but across the world. Um, in the mindset that, that peace and, and diplomacy can prevail? Well, I think there's always going to be extreme cases where people generally feel like, on occasion, that they might feel like war is, is necessary. But I think it's important to point out and poke the holes in the situations is, is that, in general, whenever people get to look at the casualties and the errors that were committed during the Vietnam and during the Iraq War and the Gulf War and pretty much every conflict since World War II is that if you show, if, if you're able to take the narrative back, and I, I feel that the, the Department of Defense and the United States government has, has just capitalized on the good intentions of, of some of these men and women who wish to defend their country and wish to defend 
the values of the United States. But they're just taking these people and putting them in horrific situations. They come home and they're mangled and worse often sometimes is they have post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, is bad or worse than any physical issues that someone might have. If we're able to, for example, find some of these people who, who've gone to war and seen the horrors of it and allow them to put them front and center and say it's not unpatriotic, it's not un-American to, to be against war and that there's nothing valiant or heroic about being in favor of war from the United States Senate or from the House and, and talk about how nation building and how regime change is necessary. I, I think that's another thing is, is talking about how regime change has negatively resulted in, in us having to clean up more problems is if, if we can show to Americans at large, for example, the reason why we have so many issues with Iran today is just links back to 1953 when the United States government overthrew their democratically elected leader. If we're able to show this cause and effect of how American interventionism has led to the issues that we had and make it a truly nonpartisan issue, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or none of the above, that showing to people all of the cause and effects of American interventionism, I think that that's when we'll start winning the arguments and people will be able to see. because. President Trump, for all of his faults, was able to inject some of that skepticism in the Republican primary for once. Right. After years of it being only Ron Paul, it, it seems like maybe the fact that he had successfully won the primary and the presidency, perhaps it will, it will inject some skepticism where no longer Republicans have to pretend like the Iraq war was a giant success, <laughs> is that they can just finally admit that it was a horrific failure that needlessly harmed thousands of Americans. So if we can just finally have that skepticism on both sides, I think that would be healthy and beneficial. Um, I want to, this next question can, can go to um, Jacob, but any of you. Um, there are, as I was saying with Jeffrey, socialist and, and fascist movements rising up uh, throughout the world. Government institutions are trying to take more and more power um, either you have the, the totalitarian state of North Korea or the theocratic state of, of, of somewhere like Iran or Saudi Arabia, um, war-torn Syria, uh, socialist Venezuela. Government power in many countries and many places across the world is rising. What can individuals uh, do to take that power back and how can how can we here help at any case yeah i think that's easier to do today than it's ever been in human history through you know, technological innovation that doesn't rely on permission from a government agency to operate and you see this uh, even here in major cities in the united states with uh, you, know, you know ride sharing and home sharing services and things like that i'd like to see more of that internationally and I think that it's it's a frontier for American startups to you know support that technology to to give entrepreneurs in you know, developing or in, in oppressed nations the ability to to meet the needs of people on the gray market through technology without relying first on the permission of bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. Make them respond to market innovations. Mm -hmm. And Jeffrey, I know that you. Um would echo a lot of that and and how that capitalism has 
more or less. We had a, a huge innovation that happened over the last 10 years in distributed networks. These are remarkable sort of properties, I guess you could say. They're owned by everybody and nobody, but potentially revolutionary implications. We've already seen how distributed networks can create money mm -hmm. that's outside of the nation state. Uh, you know, when Bitcoin came along, everybody was incredulous, including me. This is stupid. This will never work. Now it's this awesome tool of liberation for all, all, over, all over the world. It's not just about the dollar exchange rate. It's about the building of the infrastructure around Bitcoin and blockchain technologies, which are now being adopted by all the major banks. And it's an unbelievable change. The beautiful thing about the blockchain is that it has certain sort of uh, revolutionary libertarian implications because it can't be controlled by any state and it exists on a global basis as operated by individuals, a means of transmitting immutable information packets, you know, peer-to-peer -peer globally. I mean, that is just, if you think about it, a devastating innovation. If, if what you seek is a sort of top-down system run by the nation state, Distributed networks are at war with that. And they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's an innovation. And people are finding it just enormously useful. And innovations last longer than regimes, no matter what. Because they, they exist in the realm of ideas rather than just physical space and elections and that kind of thing. Right. And I think you, I think you could really see that uh, firsthand if you recall back in... The, the the Arab Spring that was going on, especially in Egypt, when they tried to to stop people from from organizing, and and what uh, kept them able to do that was social media, and that and that's how they organized, and they were not able to to shut down um, social media and to keep people apart because of the kind of world that we live in today. Yeah, I'm I'm actually, I, and it's, it's to some extent. I mean, I agree with what you said about, about Trump, and I think that you were exactly right. He was compelling for this pro-peace message. I think that was a, a big factor. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very enthusiastic about a lot of the resistance to Trump. I think, I think he's, you know, it checks his power at some level. And there's a reason why every single day he's tweeting against, <laughs> against the mainstream media, so-called mainstream. He's against anybody who's against him. Basically. Right. You know, it's not really just about media power. He's, he just doesn't want any opposition. Well, good luck. 2017, you know? Jeez. I mean, I can't so much post anything on Facebook, you know, without getting vast opposition from people. You just have to get used to it. There's free speech, and that's the world we live in. Right, yeah. That's and a very different world from that which, you know, gave rise to totalitarian governments in the 1930s and 1940s. We're, we're just not in that world anymore. Right. They may, you know, would be dictators are all around us, but they're checked. Their power is checked by the power of information. That's mm -hmm. awesome. I think I think that's really incredible, and it it speaks to the the absolute powerhouse that is capitalism, and that is the free market. That, as you said, you know, just even 50 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. You know, there would have been uh, totalitarian figureheads rising up left and right in this kind of environment. The thing is that people don't believe in capitalism. It's true, but on the other hand, they use it, and that's right. <laughs> I, I would love to have a world where, you know, we had 7 billion people rallying around the works of Rothbard and Hayek. That's not going to happen. So if it can't happen, that's, that's going to be fine as long as everybody has an investment in the, the health and well-being of the market uh, order, of the market order itself. And I, I think we do. Mm -hmm. um, to that point, I want to sli slightly change gears here. And, and Jacob, we can throw this back at you real quick. Um, 
partisanship and labels are becoming a thing of the past. And I think young people are leading that, that charge. Um, do you think that um, even in a state like this past election here in the United States, um, where everyone was incredibly divided, um, everyone thought that you have to pick a side. It's either, it's either Team Red or Team Blue, Team Trump or Team Hillary. Um, yet a lot of young people just said, I really don't want that. Whether it was, you know, voting for Gary Johnson or, or Jill Stein or just writing in someone, they completely rejected the idea that it's a binary choice and they rejected the idea that they should be associated with, with the labels that, uh, with, you know, R or D or whatever other label there is. Um, do you think that the current generation will be forcing the death of, of labels and partisanship in the coming years? Well, I think you're right to point out that this was an interesting election cycle from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. And that I think it goes beyond our generation, too. If you look, we had historically unpopular candidates on both sides, even among you know, those who held their nose and voted for what they perceived as the lesser of two evils. The fact that that was a mainstream discussion among, particularly on the right, you have all kinds of infighting about when it's acceptable to vote for the lesser of two evils. The implicit... You know, recognition there being that people were very dissatisfied with the candidates and with the platforms that the parties were offering up. I think this poses an opportunity for people like us to make the case for liberty, for people that are thinking outside of the partisan mold, if they're disgusted with what the the GOP and the Democrats are offering. In the short run, that means that there's not a lot of optimism to be had in terms of the policy implications of the current administration. But I think we've got the opportunity to make a compelling case. You know, we mentioned earlier the fact that there's so much you know, media pushback against Trump and that that's healthy. It's amazing to me to see you know, so-called mainstream media outlets talking about constitutional restraints on government, <laughs> talking about the benefits of federalism, talking about uh, you know, restraining executive orders, things like that. That's a golden opportunity for the, the pro-liberty voices that were fringe for the last eight years to make the case for, for greater individual freedom. And so I think that, well, on one hand, it's troubling that the Trumpism was so successful, that Bernie Sanders was as su- successful as he is. The, the culture is ripe for you know, fresh perspective on, fresh perspectives on politics. And if we can make the case that so many of the innovations that we all rely on are you know, markets in practice and connecting that to markets in theory in people's minds and breaking the, the straw man stereotypes of capitalism and free markets. I think we're in a position, thanks to the failures of both parties, to win ideological converts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm Republic going to get press credentials, by the way. That's what we really need. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Tucker, I'm very curious to find out when that is so that we can be called fake news to our face. <laughs> Help your traffic. I'm That's true. Yes. And, uh, to, to build on uh, what was just asked, though, is it, it's, it's crazy to think about how far the libertarian movement has come and the libertarian party in general. And so I, I know that, that Mr. Tucker and, and I wrote a lot about the, the classical liberals that were put forward by the LP. And even though it, it's, it's, 
I mean, even though he was a, a major statist and big government Republican, Theodore Roosevelt once said, "Is it's about it does it's not the critic that counts; it's the man in the arena." And in this case, it was the the two men in the arena, and they they took lots of flack. But I I've been very outspoken about saying I'm very appreciative for the job that Gary Johnson and Bill Weld did. They were no in no way perfect messengers, but they were I think the 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 men for for the time, and I think that they did very well. I. They, they tripled their vote total from four years ago and basically almost doubled the vote total in the history of the Libertarian Party. So, and I think that this is, as was said, as was alluded to by, by Jake here, is that this is young people speaking out and, and saying that isn't enough is enough. We've seen the tail end of, of President Bush's reign where civil liberties were eroded, government got larger. We voted for a candidate on on the promise of hope and change, who didn't deliver. Even though I, I feel like young people like President Obama as a man, I like President Obama as a man, but he just did not deliver. And, and deep in, in their own hearts, progressives knew that he did not deliver on his progressive promises. And so then the blowback is that we get two candidates who are from a generation prior to President Obama and giving ideas that are a generation prior, to, a couple of generations maybe, I. I don't know where you would say Eugene V. Debs was and Huey Long. <laughs> but in this case is that people saw Governor Johnson and Governor Weld, and they were espousing the ideas of liberty. And it was something much larger than those two men, is that this message of it's one that I know a lot of people at this conference probably hate, of a fiscally conservative, socially progressive. But on, on that very simplified version is that people felt like they could connect to it. And that's why for the first time in my life, I can remember driving around Pittsburgh and seeing signs for Hillary Clinton, seeing signs for Donald Trump, and seeing signs for Gary Johnson. Yeah. It's because people connected with that message, not just on the fact that it was the lesser of three evils, but it was, it was a message that could resonate. And I hope that in the next four years, we can do more than have infighting and booing and that we can just move on and, and build on that and not tear down what, what we've worked to that succeed. That's really wicked, all the infighting and, and uh, booing. I, 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 my, my concern was that, that that was going to discourage future LP candidates from ever running again. I mean, I, people have approached me about this. I'm like, do I really want to be the most hated man in the liberty world? I mean, that's basically <laughs> that seems like that's what's going to happen to any LP candidate. I don't think it was just Johnson. I think it's just the nature of libertarians to hate their leaders. <laughs> And that, now that's the interesting thing is that is historically the candidates that the libertarians have put forth, especially at the local level, more so than the presidential level, are, are activists. Yeah. And, and you can say, oh, I'm, in, I'm in favor of this and that. But whenever it comes to people who are, well, until this year, the, the standard was you had to have governing experience. Yeah. And when we, we as the Libertarian Party attempted to put forward people who had governing experience, it's as was says the man in the arena is when you have a, actually have a governing record it's it's a lot easier to be criticized because you can say you're in favor of x y and z but you can easily find you know in this year you voted for this instead of this and just pinpoint these and i, I think it's it's a matter of, of just cannibalism in in the libertarian party that, that people are, are infatuated with and it's the reason why in the debates you ask should we have entered world war one uh, should 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 five-year-olds be able to inject heroin? <laughs> Should you have to get a driver's license? 
It's just this desire. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, wanting to fail, almost. It's a very strange dynamic. I'm, I'm, I'm only a registered LP as of around a year ago. But uh, coming from the Republican Party previously, it's something very, very strange and very out of the ordinary, which I've quickly become accustomed to through, through seeing it firsthand, through hearing from, from Austin, my friend, who was also a, a, a candidate. It's a very interesting dynamic. The only true libertarian is yourself. <laughs> and I think that... that uh... I didn't think there was that, anything that wrong with this idea of, of fiscally conservative, socially tolerant, I think is what their message was. It's true, it's just a beginning, you know, and it's not the fullness of what libertarianism is, but I, it seemed like an intriguing message to me. Yeah, I think it, that message stands a chance at moving the median voter in yeah. a way that we need right now. Granted, the intramural libertarian fights on, you know, granular policy issues are interesting and fun debates. You know, those ought to be held at events like this, you know, behind closed doors. But if if the goal is to you know, to shift the voters that are you know, disaffected by the mainstream parties, but that don't read Hayek and Mises and mm-hmm. Bart for fun, I think that's a message that stands to yeah, yeah. to win yeah. in the public square. Um, Jacob, I I, I want to touch a little bit about what you said a little bit earlier, um, and I think it really spoke true is that um on the idea that that partisanship and and the idea that people are just rejecting the the theory that you you have to be associated with your own side um that was more or less completely thrown out the window when you look at the the republican party in the past year um and the rise of the never trump movement i mean that's Regardless of what it ended up becoming, it, I think, was was very powerful in that people just initially said, I'm a person. I'm an individual. I don't have to, to bow down as soon as this guy becomes uh, the Republican nominee. Um, and it completely rejected uh, right-wing collectivism, I would argue. Um, and I think that is incredibly powerful. And if that can happen in the Republican Party of all of all uh, things, then I think that throughout the world that it's it's very possible and it's very uh, very likely that it will happen on many other issues. Putting the individual first, I think that was a very good point that you made. Yeah. So as a uh a proud and boisterous never trumper online myself, mm-hmm. I was disappointed with the way that things turned out. Obviously. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it was a powerful moment for, you know, separating the people that were committed on a philosophical level to advancing freedom and people that were content with being the party of no or the party of anyone but Hillary or the reacting against the Democrats. The, the difficulty, though, I think becomes, you know, trying to cobble together you know, political alliances that can impact policy in pro-market ways. I think that the in the short run, I doubt we'll see massive tariffs imposed. I think you hear you know, gestures from people like Paul Ryan that that's not going to happen. That's mm-hmm. part of the general this, with the strange thing, this border adjustment tax, 
which I've only recently begun to look into. I mean, that thing is enormously complicated. Right. And hard to even, I mean, even the phrase itself is sort of puts you to sleep. But actually, it's <laughs> devastating. It's like it could amount to a, a gigantic tax increase and really disrupt global trade patterns. I'm actually concerned about it, especially if it's sold in the name of reducing capital gains tax. I mean, on one hand, you reduce capital gains tax. On the other hand, you apply the tax to the gross instead of just the net. Right. That's going to get, that's pretty scary. That, that seems to be like the, the norm in Washington. Let's, let's put a pretty name on the front of it, right. you know, like the or Patriot or Act or something yeah, like or, that. Or, or extremely boring. Yeah, or extremely boring name. So that way people will never even, oh gosh, I'm almost asleep just thinking about it. And that this thing is really a tax or that tariffs are taxes. I don't think, yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand that. I'm actually concerned about it. The phenomenon I'm most concerned about is less the policy that happens for the next four or potentially eight years, but it's the shift in public opinion on things like trade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. th- it's just and immigration too. To by immigration the way. too, but particularly on trade. There was I know there was a Harvard poll that came out. It was back in October. Nine out of ten Republicans now claim that trade has oh, hurt so America. And this is and this is you know the party that has ostensibly been the more pro-trade for decades. And all it takes is one angry, loud figurehead who's mm-hmm. channeling some sort of legitimate sentiment about the, you know, the misdirection of the country for the last eight years, but channeling it in an economically illiterate direction. And people so just that, go along. Right. That, know, that's me is particularly years of, concerning. Of intellectual, uh, you know, robust intellectual tradition defending free trade is suddenly wiped out. It's crazy. Yeah, and and you discussed also. It is extremely troubling that now. Americans in polls are saying that they think the trade is, is no longer ought to be free. It ought to be, quote, fair, which mm-hmm. is, is something that the President Trump said the other day in a press conference. But what uh, Mr. Tucker just alluded to is, is with immigration, is, is we go in the course of 30 years, a party which was literally in favor of open borders, and, and, and that's not a pejorative. I don't really like to use that term anymore because it's become, it's like anarchist. Is, is yeah. that open borders has become a pejorative, like, oh, yeah. and invade so I, I think that <laughs> it's a, it's very problematic, it, not just in the conservative movement, but now in the libertarian movement is yeah. the only time I ever really get much flack on my articles on the Libertarian Republic is whenever I talk about free immigration, and uh, it's not it's quote it's not a libertarian thing. You don't have to be in favor of free immigration, which I, I'm not advocating. We completely abolish borders, but I would think that, that libertarians in general ought to be able to get behind the idea that we can at least reform immigration, at least have you know, a Bush-era or Reagan-era immigration policy. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I hope that at some point we wake up to this, but this idea that now we have these, these, some of these websites which call themselves liberty or libertarian are now talking about how immigrants are going to come in and then vote in favor of big government and it's just yeah, very we, we know that that citizens don't do that right of right, yeah. right 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 of course not For no some reason they're not as, as, as worried about 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 californians yes yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's very frightening and just these premises that, that they're going to come in and I think it's just on its face very xenophobic it's very it's just very 
very troubling. And I mean, and the history shows is that when we've had the most immigration is when government has slowed in its growth. And whenever we've had the least immigration is when, when government's right. increased in size. Because a lot of people are just trying to get away from, from big government. They don't want to increase it any more than, than what they've just experienced. And Yes, absolutely. And in our movement, one that discusses the horrors of not just American interventionism, but also the war on drugs, which is overwhelmingly what mm -hmm. South and Central Americans and, and Mexicans are trying to get away from, mm. the horrors of the drug cartels and gangs. Yeah. I, I've seen so many of these documentaries about children laying on top of trains trying mm. to get into the U.S. just mm. to have an opportunity and to say that, no, we're, we're going to take care of our own first, America first, is it, something that is, is very discouraging to me. And on top of the fact that that free trade is now no longer in vogue, I guess. I, I've wondered, uh, actually, if the whole thing is based on illusion. I remember when Trump first raised the subject, it was July 2015 at Freedom Fest, and he was up there yammering on about immigration, immigration, oh, we're being invaded by from the southern border and all this. Of course, I mean, if we have a problem with Mexico, it's that too many uh, 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 undocumented workers are leaving to get, go back to Mexico, actually. <laughs> I mean, that, I so his entire speech struck me as just crazy. And it didn't really even connect with anybody in the room. And there were like 2,000 people there or something. You could tell there was not an anti-immigration feeling even on the, within the Republican Party until Donald Trump just like created it through force of personality. I mean, I mean it shows the power of a demagogue to manipulate people's perceptions of reality. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that both the immigration issue and the, the trade issue are examples of where there was a legitimate anger toward the governing class in Washington that was channeled in a dangerous populist mm -hmm. direction. I was at the inauguration and the language about returning power to the people, you know, on some shallow level, you know, it's admirable, but when it's channeled in the direction of when power to the people means we are going to use the apparatus of the state to, you know, prevent Know, free movement of people and capital and we are going to prop up American businesses rather than you know, legitimately returning power through de decentralization right. and scaling back federal regulation. Well, I mean, Trump is it, like, is like, like, like uh, the, the old Soviet uh, Politburo, you know, always claimed to be ruling on behalf of the people, you know, uh, every, every despot in history, communist, right. it's Pierre, it's always, I'm, I'm working for the people. Right, yeah, I, I, I commonly say that you know, Ron Paul was a populist, but so was Vladimir Lenin. So just 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 being a populist in and of itself and being for the people in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. You know, it can have a very dark direction. I think um, one of the most frightening aspects that Trump said during his inauguration speech um, was the notion that, and there were plenty, but the notion that um, that protection will give us strength. And when he said that, I like, I was like, holy hell, this guy is, and people cheered it. People cheered it. And that, that scared the absolute hell out of me. There, what were you correct. doing there? What so was I, it like? I it can't was, believe it. I, I've been spending the semester here in DC. Okay. And so you know, naturally it's, it's an event in world history. I had to be there. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. It was an interesting atmosphere though, because I'm surrounded by people who, you know, to their credit, the people in my section were, they were friendly, they were, Know, passionate about limited government in some vague sort of way, and they've just been caught up in this this reaction that you know he's different from what we've had, and he's talking about restoring power to the people, 
therefore we should be optimistic. Do you but think it's th become a cult, do you think? To an extent, I do. <laughs> but I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, you're not restoring power to the people. If you're dictating from Washington, D.C., you know, where I can, where iPhones can be produced, right? And that if you're, your whole governing agenda on economic policy is to pick winners and losers here in America, you're not restoring power to the people. You're shifting power from one group of the, one tiny sliver of the population to another. But, so I think that it's, it's a combination of, you know, he's a compelling character. He is and if, compelling. if you're angry at the status quo, you get the sense he'll fight back at something. People right? always it, talk about this, and they, they say to me, even at this conference, they say, well, he's going to shake up the system. You know, he's against the establishment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he really hates the mainstream media. They say all these vague things. It's like, well, what, what, uh, what point do you get, like, cuts in power? You know, at what point do we get more liberty? Is that part of the discussion? Uh, he's, yeah. I heard him say Constitution for the very first time when Justice Roberts swore him <laughs> in, and he... he that is a very valid point. Yeah, literally the only time I've been following him, following him closely now since you know, summer of 2015. Yep, yeah. that word doesn't come up. Yeah, founding fathers. Uh, founding fathers. It was yeah. nowhere in his inauguration speech. All the discussion of the founding fathers in the Constitution now come from the left trying to restrain <laughs> President Trump. How bizarre is that? Right. I don't. I don't think any of us could have foreseen. After eight years of being dormant, they they now remember what you know what what positives federalism and. Uh, separation and, and limitation of powers and all right. that can bring all apart whenever it's not your guy. Right. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, so I want to go around uh, as we as we start to wrap up here to each one of you. Uh, who is winning and who is going to win in the end? Government or the individual? We can start with uh, Jeffrey. Well, I don't think there's any question that the individual is winning right now. That is the tra trajectory of history. It's been going on for 500 years through fits and starts. Mm -hmm. And I think this experiment over the 20, uh, 20th century with the total state is, is dead. Um, it's, 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 it's a painful death to watch. And a lot of people are going to be suffering over the next few years. But I don't think there's any question that we're going to come out on the other side freer than we ever have been before. And yeah, I would I would just agree with Mr. Tucker. There is that I, I mean I've heard plenty of his lectures talking about how how liberty finds a way and talking about the internet as this this great experiment in, in liberty is that over time as much as government has grown and regulation has grown, it seems like liberty always finds a way. Whether it is the internet, which one of the things I think about is that we have the FCC and people can't imagine not having the FCC to bleep out the seven dirty words. <laughs> And, and yeah, right. Have Seven, I didn't know that. And, and, to have, and have uh, Bruce Willis and Die Hard say, you know, Mr. Falcon instead of the other MF. <laughs> and so people can't imagine that. But can you imagine if the FCC came out tomorrow and said, there's not allowed to be any swearing on the Internet? People would go insane. Absolutely. And rightfully so. Yeah. Or you have to pay for, you know, HBO premium Internet if you want to get adult content. Or people would go yeah. insane. And so just thinking about it from that way, thinking about ride sharing, which is unbelievable. I, I think about five years ago when I was in college, I would try to come home from a football game, having to wait an hour for a cab from, from the stadium to get home. Now I can come to Washington, D.C. I can just get a lift from wherever to wherever at any point. That and it's tried to be restrained by some of the socialists and the big government. And 
people have fought back because they have seen, maybe not a name, as Mr. Tucker said, not, not Mises and not Hayek, but they know about Lyft and Uber and Airbnb when they see it right in front of their eyes. Right. So I think the individual is winning. I think the individual is going to continue it to win. And uh, unlike President Trump and his supporters, I don't think we're going to get tired of winning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you, you just made a really good point because like, even what we're doing right here, right now, as a podcast, like if this was a radio show, we would have so many limitations on, on what we can say. And, and this is just completely liberating. We can go for however long we want. We can say whatever we want. And I think that that is incredibly powerful and speaks true to the market and, and how liberating it is. Go ahead, Jacob. I think on that note that it's there's an interesting disconnect we see. I don't know a single young progressive who uses taxis and shuns right? Lyft and Uber for the sake of you know principle. Right. I think that our generation in particular you know, lives in a way that's inherently you know, entrenched in markets and innovation and things along those lines. And although you'll see them espouse you know, socialism as you know, preferable to capitalism, their daily lives don't reflect that. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that even if the individual isn't winning out in terms of you know, the, the public understanding of, of the purpose of politics, in our daily lives, we are freer than we've ever been through you know, the technologies like we've discussed here today. Right. I think that's that's a very good point, especially when, you know, <laughs> the left, uh, a, a big movement right now that's that's I, I see the roots and the beginnings of is like the idea that everyone is entitled to universal free Wi-Fi or something like that. And I, I, I can't help but chuckle because, like, you wouldn't have this if it wasn't for the marketplace. And you're trying to and you're trying to completely upend it just by giving everyone uh, giving everyone free Wi-Fi. But Anyway, that is about all the time we have. Um, if you all want to go around and and, re- and give your contact, your uh, social media info, and uh, Jacob, we can start with you. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, less active on Twitter than I was now that Never Trump has fizzled out, <laughs> but uh, I would appreciate a follow. I am at Jacob Richards AZ on Twitter, and uh, feel free to reach out to me there. And uh, I just encourage you to read thelibertarianrepublic.com. And we're up to about 185,000 likes on Facebook, which we're very proud of. And personally, if you would like to follow me and check out what I have to say, uh, I'm at Josh Gukert, G-U-C-K-E-R-T. I'll have to come up with a stage name maybe to make up an easier spelling. But (laughs) for now, at Josh Gukert. And uh, I would appreciate your follow on, on Facebook and Twitter. And Jeffrey Tucker, I write every day at uh, fee.org, and you can follow me at Jeffrey A. Tucker on Twitter. And all those um, all those sites are fantastic sites. I encourage everyone to read, along with our own at Outset Magazine. Um, and you can find me at Caleb Franz on Twitter, and then follow the show at Mill Liberty for all of our updates. Um, so you'll never miss an, uh, an episode. And, uh, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes. Write us a little review, a little uh, five stars. We'll always... Do us, do us good. Um, until next time, we uh, we have a, a very good episode next week. Um, we have an exclusive interview while I'm here in D.C. Um, I'll be interviewing Jack Hunter uh, next week. And until then, we'll see you.